0: Will the wizard and the Brit basher gain access to Joe's house? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of April's book Treacle Walker by Alan Garner. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two, and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impressions summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. aware there may be spoilers i won't be using any swear words in this podcast but there is a reference to sexual activity and a murder towards the last five minutes of the podcast as i talk about the next book light by m john harrison i'd love to share your thoughts and ideas of future episodes so please leave a comment or start a conversation below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshuk at yahoo.com Welcome to Bookshook. So, this episode is all about the second half of Trica Walker from Chapter 10. That's on page 75. So, Trica Walker bangs on Joe's house to try and come in, and he is invited over the threshold, a bit like a vampire. He explains that the comic is showing the wizard and Britbasher trying to get Joe. Trica Walker says, quote, What's out is in and what's in is out. And Joe says, that is what Thin Amran also said to him. Treacle Walker implies that the green goo from that pot is what has given Joe the glamour eye. Joe says, quote, if it had fixed my wonky eye, I'd be seeing everything same road round, not all sorts. And Treacle Walker says, would you forgo the gift of both? Joe says, call that a present, I'm neither one nor t'other with it. Tereka Walker says, or are you more? Joe says, lay off. Joe slumped on the chimney sill. I'm fit to strike. It really reminds me of a conversation with a friend I had recently who was long sighted in one eye and short sighted in the other. It meant that he didn't need reading glasses or long distance glasses. Now, that final word, strike, is interesting. Extending the visual metaphor of dual sight to words. Here we have a mix of meanings. Strike to hit out or strike to go on a strike and give up. A clever bit of wordplay to highlight the implied author's idea. Tariqa Walker tells Joe that he is from, quote, the country of summer stars. and Then Joe has a dream that he is, walking around in the environment outside his house. When he returns, he sees Treacle Walker's wagon, but no Treacle Walker. He's inside his house with the waking version of himself. At this point in the novel, I'm beginning to find it a little bit tedious. I'm thinking, it's a bit of a snooze. How are you feeling about this novel so far? Now, Treacle Walker tells the awake and sleeping Joe not to touch, speak, or look into each other's eyes. And then he plays on the bone from his bag and we get the very same description as we did in the first part of the novel. Quote, it was a tune with wings, trampling things, tightened strings, boggarts and boggles and brags on their feet. The man in the oak, sickness and fever that set in long lasting sleep. The whole great world with the sweetness of sound the bone did play. Nice use of the copy and paste function by the implied author there. Am I being too cynical? Anyway, continuing on, they discuss how the bad characters from his comic escaped into his mirror and how the dreaming and non-dreaming Joe were present in the house. Treka Walker shows Joe the box of trinkets. None are in there anymore because he took, quote, the true... And Joe says, quote, there were lots, it was full. Treacle Walker says, they were shimmerings. You chose the true. And Joe says, I don't get you. And Treacle Walker says, a rainbow is not the light. And Joe says, I could have taken something else. And Treacle Walker says, and you would have held nothing. There are more matters than philosophy. What does that last sentence mean? It seems to be a bit nonsensical, a weird Version of that quote in the play by William Shakespeare called Hamlet. Hamlet suggests that human knowledge is limited. The quote goes, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. This makes some kind of sense, but not there are more matters than philosophy. I'm finding the novel very, very mystical and very, very weird, full of empty and meaningless platitudes, like I'm reading some mystical self help book. I can imagine many people loving this style of strange and elusive writing, but it's just not my thing. Are you enjoying it? I hope more than me. I'm hoping that I might change my mind about the book as I can read on. Anyway, the problem seems to be that the wizard and Brit Basher are stuck in the mirror. So even though they can't enter the house because of the donkey stoned scrubbed step, they're still able to come out of the mirror, perhaps into Joe's house. Treacle Walker goes out to, quote, observe the imperative. And in response, Joe tries to command his horse, only to find out that he lacks the ability to command with any imperatives. Treacle Walker says, quote, you do not have the words, capital W, like some Winnie the Poohism." We finally learn why Treacle Walker wanted Joe's pyjamas. It was because they were, quote, against the day, and why he wanted the Lambo, because it was, quote, delectable. So yes, they're against the day. You wear them at night, but why is that important? And why has Treacle Walker just sauntered off again? So Treacle Walker, he's left Joe's pyjamas behind and a copy of the comic. And when Joe looks at the Stonehenge kit story, it seems to be the missing week, but the boxes are blank. He tries to smash the mirror, but he isn't able to until finally he uses the donkey stone and falls into the mirror. Everything is mirrored. Reminds me a lot of Alice in the Looking Glass. He goes iteratively into the mirror nine times until he is unable to anymore. He finds Stone Age Kit under his mattress. There seems to be some kind of chase through the mirrors. The empty boxes of knockout Comet have been filled in. Ultimately the caption appears saying, quote, phew, that was close, but whizzes is out of the house and he can't get back in. What will happen next, chums? Now, Joe rubs the donkey stone over the mirror to create a threshold that hopefully Wizzy and Brit Basher won't be able to get through. Then Treyka Walker appears and says that it's not all over. Joe says, quote, can you make my eyes proper? I can't tell what's real and what isn't. Treyka Walker says he chose the glamoury and that he could have chosen, quote, shimmerings, whatever that is. Now, Treyka Walker offers to give him back his blindness and then the novel ends so there were some interesting ideas in that novel i like the words that were made up that final word strike is interesting extending that visual metaphor of dual sight words strike and strike to strike and give up it reminds me of the mix of truths each eye is seeing does that make any sense what do you think A lot of these made-up words seem to have these multiple meanings. Now, unfortunately, Joe uses these made-up words as much as everyone else. For example, Wazzock. It was a very, very strange book full of mystical ideas of old England. And I wasn't sure whether it was a children's book or an adult's book. It seems to have that child's feel to it, of child just trying to discover his way in the world and we've got that crazy comic book scene that didn't really seem to make much sense it's just a very 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 strange book and I can't really make sense of it maybe that's the point it it just does have this very 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 strange feel about it there's only three characters very very few characters in it I really enjoyed the first half when there were all those interesting rhymes remember in treacle walker's box there were Cups, saucers, platters, jugs, big and small, coloured, plain, simple, silver, gilded, twisted. Scenes of dancing, scenes of killing, ships, oceans, seas, beasts, spurs, fishes, whales, monsters, houses, castles, mansions, halls, cherubs, satyrs, nymphs, mountains, rivers, forests, lakes, fields and clouds and skies. And remember when he played on the flute made from the jawbone of a man, the quote, it was a tune with wings, trampling things, tightened strings, boggarts and bogus and brags on their feet, the man in the oak, sickness and fever that sets in long lasting sleep, the whole great world with the sweetness of sound the bone did play. So to summarise my thoughts on the book, it was very poetic, it had an interesting idea of time and we had these interesting characters, thin Amran, and the treacle walker and also those interesting comic book characters but i couldn't really engage with any of the characters they felt like cardboard cutouts to a certain extent i would probably give the book three stars out of five if i had to give stars i probably wouldn't recommend it to anyone that i know to read i didn't like it it wasn't for me that's not to say it's not a great book i think someone who has a real interest in some of the dialect that he speaks about, I think there's a lot of words that maybe went over my head because I just didn't understand whether they were made up or not. For example, "wazuk" or "skrike." Maybe that's a that's a a word that's in use in England somewhere or in the British Isles somewhere. I don't know. Um, but it just really didn't ring true for me. There was something about it which I I just didn't enjoy treacle walker i might read it again later on in the year it's quite a short book to see if there's anything that i may have missed that i can get from a second reading i would love to know your thoughts if you thought very differently let me know if you thought similarly let me know very interested to have a conversation about this i did a bit of research on alan garner so this is mainly taken from Wikipedia. He's an English novelist, best known for his children's fantasy novels and his retellings of traditional British folk tales. Much of his work is rooted in the landscape, history and folklore of his native county of Cheshire, Northwest England, being set in the region and making use of the native Cheshire dialect. He was born in Congleton. Ghana grew up around the nearby town of Alderley Edge and spent much of his youth in the wooded area known locally as the Edge, where he gained an early interest in the folklore of the region studying at Manchester Grammar School and then briefly at Oxford University. In 1957, he moved to the village of Blackton, where he bought and, and renovated a 1590 building known as Toad Hall. His first novel, The Weird Son of Brisinga Men," was published in 1960, a children's fantasy novel set on the edge. It incorporated elements of local folklore in its plot and characters. Garner wrote a sequel, The Moon of Gomrath, and a third book, Boneland. He wrote several fantasy novels, including Elidore, The Owl Service and Redshift. Turning away from fantasy as a genre, Garner produced The Stone Book Quartet in 1979, a series of four short novellas detailing a day in the life of four generations of his family. He also published a series of British folk tales, which he had rewritten in a series of books entitled Alan Garner's Fairy Tales of Gold. Alan Garner's Book of British Fairy Tales and A Bag of Moonshine. In his subsequent novels, Stradloper and Thursbitch, he continued writing tales revolving around Cheshire, although without the fantasy elements which had characterised his earlier work. In a 2014 interview conducted with Mike Pitts for British Archaeology magazine, Garner stated that, quote, I don't have anything to do with the literary world. I avoid writers. I don't like them. Most of my close personal friends are professional archaeologists. He's also been quoted as saying I have four filing cabinets of correspondence from readers and over the years the message is clear and unwavering. Readers under the age of 18 read what I write with more passion, understanding and clarity of perception than do adults. Adults bog down, claim that I'm difficult, obscurantist, willful and sometimes simply trying to confuse. I'm not. I'm just trying to get the simple story simply told. I didn't consciously set out to write for children, but somehow I connect with them. I think that's something to do with my psychopathology and I'm not equipped to evaluate it. The article goes on, although Garner's early work is often labelled as children's literature, Garner himself rejects such a description, informing one interviewer that, quote, I have certainly never written for children, but that instead he has always written purely for himself. Neil Philip, in his critical study of Garner's work in 1981, commented that up until that point, quote, Everything Alan Garner has published has been published for children. And then we went on to relate that, quote, it may be that Garner's is a case where the division between children's and adults' literature is meaningless and this fiction is instead enjoyed by a type of person, no matter what their age. The Oxford Companion to Children's Literature quotes him as saying, quote, an adult point of view would not give me the ability to be as fresh in my vision as a child's point of view because the child is still discovering the universe and many adults are not. Philip offered the opinion that the essence of his work was, quote, the struggle to render the complex in simple, bare terms, to couch the abstract in the concrete and communicate it directly to the reader. He added that Garner's work is, quote, intensely autobiographical in both obvious and subtle ways. Highlighting Garner's use of mythological and folkloric sources, Philip stated that his work explores, quote, the disjointed and troubled psychological and emotional landscape of the 20th century through the symbolism of myth and folklore. He also expressed the opinion that, quote, time is Garner's most consistent theme. The English author and academic Catherine Butler noted that Garner was attentive to the, quote, geological, archeological, and cultural history of his settings and careful to integrate his fiction with the physical reality beyond the page. As a part of this, Garner has included maps of Alderley Edge in both the Weird Stone of Bryn and the Moon of Gomrath. Garner has spent much time investigating the areas that he deals with in his books. Writing in the Times Literary Supplement in 1968, Garner commented that in preparation for writing his book Elidor, Quote, "I had to read extensively textbooks on physics, Celtic symbolism, unicorns, medieval watermarks, megalithic archaeology, study the writings of Jung, brush up my Plato, visit Avebury, Silbury and Coventry Cathedral, spend a lot of time with demolition gangs on slum clearance sites, and listen to the whole of Britain's war reculum nearly every day." Then the article goes on to talk about his recognition and legacy. In a paper published in the Children's Literature Association Quarterly, Maria Nikolaeva characterised Garner as, quote, one of the most controversial authors of modern children's literature. In the 50th anniversary edition of The Stone* of Brisingamen, several notable British fantasy novelists praised Garner and his work. Susan Cooper related that, quote, the power and range of Alan Garner's astounding talent has grown with every book he's written. Whilst David Armand called him one of Britain's greatest writers whose works quote really matter. Philip Pullman the author of his Dark Materials trilogy went further when he remarked that quote Ghana is indisputably the great originator the most important British writer of fantasy since Tolkien and in many respects better than Tolkien because deeper and more truthful uh, any country except Britain would have long ago recognized his importance and celebrated it with postage stamps and statues and street names But that's the way with us. Our greatest profits go unnoticed by the politicians and the owners of media empires. I salute him with the most heartfelt respect and admiration. The article goes on. Another British fancy writer, Neil Gaiman, claimed that, quote, Garner's fiction is something special in that it was, quote, smart and challenging based in the here and the now in which real English places emerged from the shallows of folklore and in which people found themselves walking, living and battling their way through the dreams and patterns of myth. Praise also came from Nick Lake, editorial director of HarperCollins Children's Books, who proclaimed that, quote, Garn is quite simply one of the greatest and most influential writers this country has ever produced. Thank you, Wikipedia. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about May's book, Light by M. John Harrison. It's 320 pages. It's published in 2002. If you're reading alongside, I will be reading up to chapter 18, The Circus of Pathet Lao*, on page 161. Now, I chose this book because I wanted to read some more science fiction. I was very inspired by Vagabonds. That's December's podcast episode 45, and this book was said to be very good. Now, I know hardly anything about M. John Harrison. I'm going to read the first few pages. Chapter 1, Disillusioned by the Actual. 1999. Towards the end of things, someone asked Michael Kearney, how do you see yourself spending the first minute of the new millennium? This was their idea of an after-dinner game up in some bleak Midlands town where he had gone to give a talk. Wintry rain dashed at the windows of the private dining room and ran down them in the orange streetlight. Answers followed one another round the table with a luminous predictability, some sly, some decent, all optimistic. They would drink until they fell down, have sex, watch fireworks, or the endless sunrise from a moving jet. Then someone volunteered, with the bloody children I expect. This caused a shout of laughter and was followed immediately by, with somebody young enough to be one of my children. More laughter, general applause. Of the dozen people at the table, most of them had some idea like that. Kearney didn't think much of any of them and he wanted them to know it. He was angry with the woman who had brought him there and he wanted her to know that. So when it came to his turn, he said, driving someone else's car between two cities I don't know. He let the silence develop then added deliberately, it would have to be a good car. There was a scatter of laughter. Oh dear, said someone. She smiled around the table. How dear. Someone else changed the subject. Kearney let them go. He lit a cigarette and considered the idea, which had rather surprised him. In the moment of articulating it, or of admitting it to himself, he had recognised how corrosive it was. Not because of the loneliness, the egocentricity of the image, here in this enclave of mild academic and political self-satisfaction, but because of its puerility. The freedoms represented, The warmth and emptiness of the car, its smell of plastics and cigarettes, the sound of a radio playing softly in the night, the green glow of dials, the sense of it as an instrument of a series of instrumental decisions aimed and made use of at every turn in the road were as puerile as they were satisfying. They were a description of his life to that date. As they were leaving, his companion said, Well, that wasn't very grown up. Kearney gave her his most boyish smile. It wasn't, was it? Her name was Clara. She was in her late thirties, red haired, still quite young in the body, but with a face already beginning to be lined and haggard with the effort of keeping up. She had to be busy in her career. She had to be a successful single parent. She had to jog five miles every morning. She had to be good at sex and still need it and enjoy it and know how to say in a kind of whining murmur, oh that, yes, that, oh yes, in the night. Was she puzzled to find herself here in a red brick and terracotta Victorian hotel with a man who didn't seem to understand any of these achievements? Kearney didn't know. He looked round at the shiny off-white corridor walls, which reminded him of the junior schools of his childhood. This is a sad dump, he said. He took her by the hand and made her run down the stairs with him, then pulled her into an empty room, which contained two or three billiard tables, where he killed her as quickly as he had all the others. She looked up at him, puzzlement, replacing interest in her eyes before they filmed over. He had known her for perhaps four months. Early on in their relationship, she had described him as a serial monogamist, and he hoped perhaps she could now see the irony of this term, if not the linguistic inflation it represented. In the street outside, shrugging, wiping one hand quickly and repeatedly across his mouth, he thought he saw a movement, a shadow on the wall, the suggestion of a movement in the orange streetlight, Rain, sleet and snow all seemed to be falling at once. In the mix, he thought he saw dozens of small motes of light. Sparks, he thought. Sparks in everything. Then he turned up the collar of his coat and quickly walked away, looking for the place he had parked his car. He was soon lost in the maze of roads and pedestrian malls that led to the railway station, so he took a train instead and didn't return for some days. When he did, the car was still there, a red Lancia integral he would rather enjoyed owning. Wow, what an interesting opening. So this Kearney guy giving some kind of talk and then, as if out of nowhere, he kills his companion. And it happens just in the middle of the paragraph. He took her by the hand, made her run down the stairs with him, then pulled her into an empty room which contained two or three billiard tables where he killed her as quickly as he had all the others. She looked at all the others... So he's a, serial, he's a serial killer, not necessarily a serial monogamist. I'm very interested in learning more about this Kearney chap and what is motivating him to do all these killings. Thanks very much M. John Harrison and also to Alan Garner. And for you, for listening to this podcast if you have any questions or comments i'd love to hear them so leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com and if you want to recommend a future book to read together do let me know also if you enjoyed this please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars in your episode app thank you i look forward to reading the first half of light by m john harrison 320 pages at the next episode of bookshook that's going to be the 5th of May, the second Friday of May the 5th. See you then.